Season 2 of Breaking Beta is brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition. After the episode, use the code BETA15 for 15% off of your next order at gonarly.com or click the link in your show notes to have the code automatically applied. Gnarly Nutrition. Push your possible with science-backed, delicious sports nutrition. You look tired. Your eyes are kind of red. You getting enough sleep? Actually, no. I'm working on this really complex new tat. Yeah? Yeah, a guy wants his whole back tent up, him and his chopper with, like, flames all around. And I keep showing him the design, and he keeps asking for changes, like, give me more muscles, give me more flames. And I'm like, A, this ain't the Sistine Chapel, and B, I have had enough trouble working around your zits. It's all about the design, Paul. If you don't get that right... Everything goes to shit. What is it? Starting from first principles? If you don't start from the right principles, it really doesn't matter what you get out of it. Exactly. And today's episode is going to be a little bit different than usual. Um, Rather than break down a couple of studies to find the main takeaways, we're going to show how the study design can drastically alter the results that you get. And, you know, essentially, if you're only reading the abstract, then you might never even see that there's an issue there. Um, And we're going to do that through the lens of chalking up and shaking out. And we're still going to be giving you the main takeaways that we get from looking at all these papers that we're going to be looking at today. Um, But we're mostly focused on how the study design, how some simple changes in study design can make all the difference. And I think most climbers would agree that both chalking up and shaking out are helpful. Most of us. I mean, man, you look at the, like the titles of both these papers, like, you know, chalking for climbing is a myth or like, what is it? So the first paper is, uh, use of chalk and rock climbing sine qua non, which I have written out. Cause I looked at it and I was like, I don't know what that means. So I looked it up. Um, so sine qua non is thing that is absolutely necessary or is it a myth? And you're like, well, of course it's not a myth. Like, are you kidding me? But, um, you know, maybe <laughs> right. the, uh, maybe the findings are going to be a little bit different or that like shaking out doesn't help. That's another one. Just like, if you go from experience, you're like, what are you talking about? Like you need to shake out, or at least if you're sport climbing or if you're out of shape, then you just can't stop. You just have to go until you fall or get to the anchors. One of the two, but, um, yeah, yeah well, you know, most climbers are going to agree with that. And even even if those statements are fiction... And that is the fiction that we should be sticking to. We're sticking to it. It, <laughs> it doesn't matter. We're going to keep chalking up. We're going to keep shaking out, no matter what science says. But when science, in like in this case, in 2001, we have a paper from Lee, Margetts, and Fowler that says chalking up is a myth... And it doesn't help. And then 2010, we get a paper from Green and Standard saying that shaking out doesn't help recovery. So when science says that, it would still be nice if somebody scientific could say, well, maybe that's not true. (laughs) And in this case, the question is, is it possible that science got it wrong? And I think so. We've got several other papers that stepped in to refute the findings of these original papers. And it kind of reminds me of rap battles. (laughs) Like (laughs) every paper in here after the first ones reference back to that 
that initial paper and like, this flies in the face of this paper. And I'm like, yeah, get them. <laughs> so, yeah. so I think it's very a really polite arguing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's a really interesting way to, to look at the study design and see how it is going to change things, especially in a world where, you know, we often blindly just follow what we read on Instagram. Sometimes that stuff on Instagram is pulled straight from the abstract of a study. That study may not be true. And I think it's up to us as the the reader, the listener, the viewer, whatever, to do our due diligence and know what these what the study's actually yeah. saying. Yeah. And you know, sometimes someone might have even just, you know, explored a bunch of things of a few individuals they work with and called it a study, even though it's not even close to an actual study. Yeah, some informal experiments, yeah. we will call them. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's do this thing. You clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I'm Paul Corsaro. I'm Chris Hampton. Look, you two guys are just guys, okay? And you're listening to Breaking Beta. Where we explore and explain the science of climbing. And with our skills, you'll earn more than you ever would on your own. We've got work to do. Are you ready? Ready, 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 ready? I am so ready. My hands have started to sweat. My fingertips are a little damp. Um, I was about to chalk up, but I glanced at a paper and, you know, I'm evidence-based, quote unquote. So maybe I shouldn't do that. We'll find out. How about you? Are you ready? And that is the fiction that we should be sticking to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I am. Uh, I, I came up in the Cincinnati hip-hop scene where we had a festival every year called Scribble Jam that was based entirely around DJ battles and B-boy battles and MC battles. And this is rock climbing science battles. So I'm all for it. Cool. Um, let's have you take us through the methods. In a scenario like this, I don't suppose it is bad form to just flip a coin. All right. So for this study, uh, we'll just start with the population like usual. They took 15 students. Um, and this is the chalking paper. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Chalk, chalk for climbing is a myth. Uh, with That's the, uh, the Lee, uh, Margots, and Fowler paper. Yes. So 15 students, uh, 20 to 22 years of age, um, and pretty much they looked at the ability to honestly slow down a piece of rock until they couldn't. So they took this square of either sandstone, slate, or granite. So they had three different rock types, and then attached to this apparatus where it was on a carriage where it would move back and forth. They would attach a weight to it. And they would restrain the individual's arm to where their fingertips were just on the uh, plate of rock, which again was either sandstone, granite, or slate. What they would do is when they had the force on the uh, plate, they had some strain gauges set up to measure the forces involved in the system. And they had the fingertips on the slate and they would have the individual slowly reduce pressure on that piece of rock, whatever type it was, until they couldn't hold it anymore. And they would look at, A, the rock type. They would look at the force that was generated and the conditions to which the individual's hands were touching the rock with. So they had these different conditions where it was a dry condition where the participants cleaned their hands with water and mild detergent. 
but had nothing else on it. They had dry plus chalk where they also dried those hands. The individual chalked those hands. And then they also tapped the back of the hand to remove any excess or how rock climbers normally follow a similar procedure or blow on the hand. Um, I don't think that's like, you know, in the textbook of rock, uh, rock climbing technique, you know, you'll see it. It's, but. it's funny to me that they went with, let's, let's insert some rock climbing procedure here into this test where we're having someone sit on a chair, not move, pull the rock away from them and have them release pressure slowly, which is, you know, exactly like rock climbing. Man, I just wish they uh, forced everybody to blow on the hand. That at least would have some steez to this, right? <laughs> We'd have to take into account all the particles of spit that get mixed <laughs> in. Um, that might be helpful, you know? But yeah, so so that was the, uh, so we had the dry condition and we had the dry plus chalk, which you just talked about. We also had the wet condition where the pads of the fingers were pressed into a damp sponge. This was aimed at reproducing the conditions encountered when the hands are sweating. And after they press it into the damp sponge, they tried to hold on to that piece of rock as long as possible while slowly reducing pressure until the the sample would slide away. Uh, The next condition was wet plus chalk. So they wetted the hand as well, pressing into that sponge. And then they would also chalk the hands and again see at what point the sample of rock started moving away so using the examples of the force they had when the rock started moving they're able to deduce the coefficient of friction from there so they were just trying to see what level of the coefficient of friction would the sample start moving based on the condition of the hand, whether it was a dry, dry plus chalk, wet or wet plus chalk. And, you know, just looking at this whole setup, if I had to explore chalk and how it affects on a hand and how it affects on performance of rock climbing, and I had to think about a way where I could explore this in a way as far away from actually rock climbing as possible, I think I would sit for a few hours and probably still not even get this far. Like um, going from a technical aspect, you know, everyone argues about sports specificity, right? How do we make something specific? I think, you know, if I want to rationalize whatever choice I make with climbing or testing or training or whatever, I think the one fallback or the one crutch I have is intention. You know, if we can make our intention specific, that's at least one way we can make things specific. The intention of this whole setup was the exact opposite of climbing. The intention was letting go. <laughs> and I think in that way, like you really have to take what they find with a grain of salt. In my opinion, it just seems like the intentions yeah. diametrically opposite to what we're looking for in rock climbing. Um, yeah, do you have anything totally. else you want to add on the methods? I kind of, again, went on one of my rants, but I mean, <sighs> I'm going to I'm going to pull this sample back out from season 1. Oh hey guys, you forgot something. And the thing they forgot was rock climbing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they <laughs> sure. they they decided they were going to look for the coefficient of friction and really what they ended up just looking for was how little pressure can we put on a panel of rock before we slip from it, you know? that's that's not rock climbing at all um Mm -hmm. so maybe they're finding something to do with the friction um 
but they're missing a really key component to the coefficient of friction in rock climbing. And we'll explore that a little bit later. But I think the minute you get into the methods of this paper and you look at this setup, you have to go, what? That, that this doesn't make any sense. It really feels like a bunch of, and I'm making wild assumptions about these authors. So, you know, if someone's correct me, yeah. please do. It feels like we had a bunch of material science engineers do a paper about mm -hmm. rock climbing who's never seen the sport of rock climbing. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly how it felt to me. That's mm -hmm. why I say I think they totally forgot rock climbing in, their, in this equation here. Yeah. And in the abstract of the paper, just to point out here, they make the statement, and I quote, we conclude that to improve the coefficient of friction in rock climbing, an effort should be made to remove all particles of chalk. Alternative methods for drying the fingers are preferable. And I think it's pretty easy once you see these methods that this statement just simply can't be accurate based on what they found. And man, I could see something float out on the internet tomorrow where someone cites this paper and yeah. it's like, hey, we've been doing yeah. it all wrong. This is what we need to do. Totally. Yeah. Before we, before we tear this one apart with the help of many other studies <laughs> that looked at the same thing, let's, uh, let's go through the methods of the shaking paper from Green and Standard in 2010. So for this uh, study, there were 18 individuals. Uh, nine were indoor rock climbers, all male. Nine were untrained participants. Uh, five were men, four were female. Um, they did a battery of tests here. The first one, they looked at max strength on a hand grip. Again, we're all using a hand grip, so I don't really know how much of this is going to really translate towards climbing performance. So they mm -hmm. looked at a max hand grip score. They did some fatiguing exercises, which is pretty much multiple sets of three one repeaters on that hand grip. They looked at some surface EMG, and then they finished with 20 squeezes for time pretty much, which is like pretty much hand grip CrossFit. <laughs> Um, and then they looked at how this tied to climbing performance or, uh, recovery or the force generated. Um, to be honest, I kind of zoned out a little bit cause I saw the hand grip and I was just like, mm, this isn't really going to correlate really all that well. Yeah. Same man. It, you know, some of it, some of it's smart, like some, some parts of their setup is smart. Um, but they, they recognize that squeezing this thing doesn't really look at all like climbing. You know, they, mm -hmm. someone once years ago, I believe it was Watts, and I don't remember what year that was, said in a paper that it correlates to climbing ability. Um, and they say in this paper, they feel like it has adequate specificity. So they know they can get more specific. It's 2010, hangboards are round. You know, we, we can hang from strips of wood already, but they're, they're aware we could get more specific, but this is adequate. I mean, well, if you look at that line in the paper, seven lines higher, they say the hand grip exercises and hand grip dynamometer using the study do not simulate all the hand grip positions that are encountered during rock climbing. So, or any of the hand grip positions. Man, I wish I, I wish I could hear, I don't know if you can, I'll just. On the uh, the paper, I have written with an arrow or any, and that highlighted. So. <laughs> Leave that for smarter minds than me. Science is a mystery. Yeah, man, I I don't get it, you know. And in the abstract, they say it's recommended that rock climbers and their coaches focus on optimizing body position rather than compromising body position to allow for shaking out. 
as if shaking out is always in some compromising body position. I don't, are you always supposed to have two hands attached to the rock? I don't know. I don't understand. Man, like, and I'm, I know maybe these researchers are climbers, but it just feels like both the previous paper and this pair, I feel like these people haven't really rock climbed. Yeah. Like, uh, that's how it feels to me as well. Maybe before we go to break, let's just take a quick look at some of the, the changes in methodology. We don't have to go through all the methods and the participants and all of that. But what changes in methodology were made in the, the papers we've found that refute these two? Um, I pulled initially like six or seven other chalking papers, all, all in response to this. I narrowed it down to three others that we have here. Fuss, Neagle, and Tan from 2004, Fuss and Neagle from 2012, and Amca et al. in 2012. And those methods, I think, make more sense from all of those papers. They end up doing some version of hanging or pulling on an edge. Yeah, I think some one of the big points, especially with the Foose and Neagle and Tan and the Foose and Neagle paper, again, I'm probably butchering those names. Um, yeah, like you said, they're hanging. The intention is to actually hang on to a hold, which is, again, right. if we want to move things into a broad brush as to how can we make things specific, let's look at intention. One is to let go. One is to hang on. Another one uh, on both these papers too, I think they did make an important point about coefficient of friction where they yeah. noticed that the, um, the Lee paper, the coefficient of friction was pretty high for those, like surprisingly high for all materials. Mm -hmm. They even state in the uh, Foose, Nickel, and Tan paper that the coefficient of friction can be higher than one in some metals and between rubber tires and dry roads. But values higher than two are unlikely. And then in the Lee paper, we had a coefficient of friction of three and then chalk reduced it to 2.5. So those numbers right. aren't adding up for like what I would assume to be basic science with my rudimentary understanding of you know, material physics. Right. So maybe something and was they, off there. But yeah, what they end up saying there is that they're not taking into account the pressure that's applied. Mm -hmm. as part of that coefficient of friction. Um, you know, they were trying to reduce the pressure as much as possible rather than let's see what it actually looks like when we're applying the types of pressure that get applied uh, in the sport. And all of these subsequent studies do apply pressure in the same way that we do in the sport. And that's a hugely important part of the actual coefficient of friction. Yeah, and I think... Uh one of the common characteristics of these studies was either, you know, individuals competing. They looked at some uh, world level competition and did some 3D force analysis on certain mm -hmm. holds. Uh, they looked at individuals holding on to a set of edges as they make made the angle steeper until they couldn't hang on. So the intention there is just completely different. They're trying to hang on. People are trying to perform and stay on the wall as long as possible, which is rock climbing. Right. And frankly, I don't care what the coefficient of friction is. No. I couldn't. I couldn't <laughs> give a shit less what the coefficient of friction is if I can stay on the wall. 100%. And that's what matters to me. It's what matters to every other rock climber I know 
what's going to help me stay on the wall longer? Um, and that's what they end up looking at here, essentially. They're, they're speaking in you know, more scientific terms. They're a lot smarter than either of us, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to this. But ultimately, it's how long are these people able to stay on? And I think that's really important. Yeah, in terms of s smarter than us, I remember, what is it, the Foose and Eagle paper? Like, there's a bunch of equations where there's no numbers in it. It's just all letters. <laughs> I'm just like, whoa. <laughs> I don't know about this one. Knowledge is power. <laughs> Math without numbers. <laughs> I know. I see those things and I, my eyes just go totally white and I gloss over them entirely. I don't even recognize that they exist. <laughs> Um, what about the methods in the 2015 Ballas paper that that goes on to refute this original Green and Standard paper? What was different there? Uh, yeah, so this actually ties back to a paper we reviewed earlier in this season, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, yep. It was pretty similar to that. So, and it makes sense. You know, we have some of the same authors involved, like David Giles, so on mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, so they had 22 all male uh, subjects. Uh, they used a similar force plate with a one wooden rung where they would first test their highest force generated on that rung. And then they had a couple tests where there's the continuous strength test where they're trying to see how much they could keep or how long the individual could keep 60% of their max force on that edge. They had a repeater, which was eight seconds on, two seconds off roughly trying to also keep around 60% of that. And they were trying to see if while they were resting during that two-second rest interval, either shaking however they wanted or non-shaking, and just seeing if that changed how long they could continue those work intervals staying around 60%. Um, yeah. So they're actually pulling on an edge. Mm -hmm. um, you know, already – we're we're getting a study design that makes far more sense uh, from the through the lens of rock climbing. You know, using using a hand grip squeezer as an analog to rock climbing just is not nearly as specific as we can get, and it's not going to give us the same kind of information. I will say the particip participants did use chalk, and we all know chalk hurts performance, so we probably should disregard <laughs> the study. So. They obviously <laughs> didn't read that lead paper before they started this. Yep. <laughs> all right. Uh, anything else to say about those methods? And you know, we'll, we'll take a commercial break and come back and just talk about what we actually find in these papers. Um, is it a myth that chalk helps and and is shaking out actually going to help us so anything else on the methods of that paper that stood out to you no i think we covered them all pretty well and yeah nothing nothing else to report all right let's take a break please all right i really need a break here okay you know that time when conditions are perfect just the right amount of chili and crisply dry and you're totally focused on the project you're climbing really well it all feels amazing right up until you're crashing and you blow it after you got through the crux for the first time? Yeah, I used to be you. I'd forget to drink water and eat snacks. My energy would tank, I'd get hangry, I'd blame everything but myself. Well, not anymore. Gnarly Hydrate has the perfect amount of electrolytes, natural sugars, B vitamins, and deliciousness to help keep you going all day. Yes, science! 
Use code BETA15, that's B-E-T-A-1-5, for 15% off your next order at GoGnarly.com or click the link in the show notes to have the code automatically applied. Oh, and try the raspberry. You can thank me later. So I'll go back to work, for Christ's sake, okay? All right, we are back, and so far we've seen that uh, the original chalking and shaking papers were set up in a way that gave us results that just to us as climbers didn't make sense. Um, but that's really only because we know that these things improve performance, or at least we all believe that they improve performance. So we're immediately like, I don't buy it. You know, something's wrong. Um, you know, if, if it's either what we want to hear that the study is saying, or if it's something that we don't know much about, we're more than likely going to just accept it and move on um, instead of looking deeper. Really, the, like I said, the only reason to look deeper in this is because I'm like, well, I'm not going to stop chalking up. So I want to know where this study went wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that's an issue that that we so blindly just accept what's written in the abstract rather than looking deeper. Yeah, and everyone's experience is important. You know, like I'm not going to drop either my years of experience or anyone, anyone should take their own experience as something important. They shouldn't discount their experience of rock climbing yeah. just because yeah. of something they read or someone said on the internet and just throw off what they've gathered over their time enjoying the sport. So, yeah. right. Totally. Even if it's, I mean, even if it's 10 different well-designed studies that say this thing you're doing doesn't work, but you feel like it's working for you, by all means, in most cases, you should just keep doing that thing. Mm -hmm. Very much so. All right, let's uh, let's look at some of the actual results found in these better papers. I got all these little pieces. Like, they're all part of the story, right? But they don't mean much on their own. But when you start telling me what you know, we start filling in the gaps. I'll have them and lock them before the sun goes down. Okay, so from the Fussnegal and Tan... That sounds like a law firm, Fussnagel <laughs> and Tan. Um, in 2004, their results in relation to the handhold, they say there's no difference between a dry hand and a liquid chalked hand. There's no difference between dry and wet hands. There's no difference between a powder chalked hand on a clean surface and a dry hand on a chalk covered surface. Powder chalk is far better than liquid chalk. Powder chalk is far better than a dry hand. And for chalk-covered surfaces, a dry hand is better than a powder-chalked hand. Now, I know that was a lot of a lot of things that are hard to take all in at once. Essentially, they're saying powder chalk is good, liquid chalk is bad. If the hold is already chalked, don't bother chalking up your hands because it's only going to make it worse. Oh. However... And I only noted when I originally read this paper, I didn't notice this. And it wasn't until I released an episode on the Power Company podcast talking about rosin in chalk um, that I went back to this paper and looked. The liquid chalk that they use in this paper does contain rosin. Mm. And we've heard quite a bit from climbers who climb in font and in areas where rosin has been popular, that if you try to use chalk on a rosin-covered hold, it makes it feel slipperier. And 
we don't hear that same complaint when it's just regular old magnesium carbonate. Um, and what they did to chalk up the holds was to smear, and that's their word, smear liquid chalk all over the holds. So in effect, they've smeared rosin all over these holds. So for me, using this Bial liquid chalk that has rosin in it, makes this study an indictment against rosin more than an indictment against liquid chalk or chalky holds. Yeah, that, so, that uh, clears up definitely a few of the question marks and highlights that I had on this little summary on the paper because liquid chalk is yeah. definitely a useful thing to have around here, especially when things start getting humid in the shoulder season, sh exactly. shoulder seasons. And um, yeah, the dry hand is better than liquid chalk or the dry hand and liquid chalk hand are the same from experience. I'm not sure I believe in that, but uh, the fact that there was rosin involved in this, that does change things. Yeah. It also, I, I do find it interesting that they're finding a rosin chalked hand is no different than a hand with no chalk at all on it. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a, an even bigger indictment against rosin, as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's not really doing a whole lot different. So maybe don't use it. Even if it feels sticky when you put it on, maybe it's not worth the damage it's doing. Truth. And then in, uh, in 2012, from AMCA et al., who looked at the coefficient of friction of chalk on both limestone and sandstone, um, the other two studies used plastic holds. This one looked at real rock. They find chalk being helpful for the coefficient of friction on both sandstone and limestone. They also find sandstone has a higher coefficient of friction than limestone. Uh, any of us could have told them that. Mm. And they found no relationship between coefficient of friction and humidity and temperature, which I thought was really interesting. But they theorized this could be because they didn't look at the extremes of humidity and temperature. I think that's probably likely. You live in an extreme of humidity and temperature. <laughs> they should climb in Chattanooga right now. I bet that'll change. <laughs> this weekend, it was nice, but we're back to over 100 degrees this week. So they want to test those extremes of humidity and temperature. Come on yeah. down. We're ready to do it. Yeah, and they can come here for the cold and dry yep. in the in the middle of the winter. I <laughs> I have, um, you know, for the folks listening who have never experienced this, I never had until I moved out here to Wyoming. Um, when I sent one of my hardest boulders last year, I sprayed water on my hands first because I kept blowing off the holds. I just I slid right off when I was chalking up. And I, my skin was just too dry, felt like glass. So I sprayed water on, I pulled on, and I did the boulder. So that does happen. Um, last but not least, from Fuss and Neagle again, also in 2012. Um, they give us some interesting ideas in this paper mm -hmm. that I thought were kind of fun. Um, first, they say the more we have our weight over our feet, the closer our center of mass must be to the wall in order to avoid an increase in the coefficient of friction. That's the, the normal, like, follow the rules that, that a lot of coaches love to hear. You know, get your hips in, get your hips in, stay closer to the wall. However, they say, if an increase in coefficient of friction is advantageous, meaning there are times when increasing that coefficient of friction mm -hmm. is advantageous, one valid strategy is to unload the feet and put more weight 
on the hands. So we're breaking the rules of all those coaches here. Don't put all your weight on your feet. Get your hips away from the wall. Put more weight on your hands, and that's going to increase the coefficient of friction. It's where you see those futuristic sequences where it's like campusing and the 360 moves and all that, you know? Yeah, I like it. I mean, that's – I like when anything breaks rules, frankly. Mm -hmm. So, And then, like you mentioned earlier, they measure the 3D forces on a hold – uh, during the ladies' quarterfinal in the Singapore World Cup in 2002. And interestingly, they found that the better climbers, the ones who were ranked higher, were able to go closer to the point of impending slippage than less experienced climbers. So for me, this just suggests that we can learn to be more patient mm-hmm. as we become better climbers, even when it seems that failure is imminent. And just because the friction is less and you might be sliding doesn't mean you're done. Yeah. And I think we see that pop up pretty frequently as we've gone through this season and last season where being able to push past the point of where things seem optimum and being a little more uncomfortable mm-hmm. in a very broadly defined uh, circumstance that shows up more and more as you get more experienced or you can climb at a higher level. Just being able to right. be okay when everything may not be okay and persevere through. Mm-hmm. So perseverance is huge. Yeah, it's not all about the friction. It, it can also be about your reaction to the friction. And one thing I will say about this paper too is, you know, it takes some time to sit down and really think about as you look at these diagrams. But I thought it's the first time I've ever seen these like biomechanical diagrams for rock climbing. And mm-hmm. it's pretty interesting. So if, if that's something you're interested in, in biomechanics and rock climbing, like search out this paper. It'll uh, it'll give you some uh, things to chew on. Yeah, it's super interesting. I, I posted one of the the figures on my Instagram mm-hmm. with the, <laughs> it was the like the snowman looking yep. dude with the pointy <laughs> nose. People loved it. Yeah. Um, do you want to take us through some of the findings from this ballast paper? This is the one that showed that shaking out actually does help. Uh, Yeah. So they found that the two-second recovery during the intermittent testing increased the time to failure for the finger flexors. So that little bit of rest in between helped. They were able to do more. They were able to do more reps. Um, Recovery is important. Mm -hmm. Um, And then shaking also enhanced that muscle, muscle oxygenation. So uh, I don't think we talked as much about the methods for this one. But they also used, as they went through this repeater test, they had a, it was actually one of those those moxie pads. So pretty much a, a sticky piece of fabric that you can put on the forearm flexors and can look, it's theorized, at the oxygen content of the blood flow through those muscles. So using that uh, moxie device, they were able to find that shaking did help reoxygenate the muscles during those rest periods. Yep. And maybe most importantly, it increased the time to failure, Yep, I think. so. And that's what we really want. 100%, yeah. I like, just want to be able to hang on longer. If I clip the chains, I don't really give a shit how much oxygen is left in my forearms. I've just clipped the chains. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Um, also interesting is shaking of the hand near the body was found to be more effective than keeping the hand above the head. So, you know, keeping the arm low and shaking increased time by 22%. Um, and also the force time integral. Uh, we talked about this in a previous taper that previous paper that looked at a similar testing battery where 
I think the force time integral is pretty much how responsive the individual is to hitting that desired intensity on the board. So I think that is actually a pretty interesting representative of skill in my mind. Mm -hmm. If we're going to try and do the impossible task of putting a number to skill. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but pretty much so going back to my, the original, uh, point, if you shook with your hand down and increased the time by 22%, uh, compared to a lower number when you shook with the hand over the head. So, yep. which is interesting. Um, I don't know if I'm going to go out of my way to tell someone that, Oh, you need to shake with your hands low. Like don't do what feels best for you, but it's something to think about for sure. You, you know, Eric Hurst sort of popularized that G-tox mm -hmm. term, which was uh, shaking with your hand above your head. And and I do think that, you know, maybe it doesn't help your forearms any, mm -hmm. but it sure does feel good to move your shoulder around, you know, while you're hanging out at a rest and to switch positions. Um, so <laughs> I'm not going to look at this and be like, Oh no, I just raised my arm above my head. I've I'm losing 22% of my efficiency now. You better just take and dirt. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> um and then lastly, they did have an interesting thing here about the uh what they called the aerobic index, which mm -hmm. was uh looking at the difference between the continuous tests where they how long the individual could maintain around 60% of their max contraction in the intermittent test. So they found that sport climbers went longer, boulders went a little bit less longer, and then the lower grade climbers, so just the less experienced climbers or people climbing at a lower level at the time, went went less longer or even shorter. So um, they found that it does distinguish the ability groups. That could be something interesting to look at in terms of how to prescribe training or just metrics to chase if you're going yeah. this route when assessing climbers you know it makes sense you think of other things in strength conditioning climbing where you've got your dynamic strength index right where you're looking at you know your fast force producing capabilities you know relative to your slow max force producing capabilities like that can help us make decisions as coaches so mm -hmm. that was one thing that did raise my eyebrows looking at this is you know maybe this is something i can explore as a coach and see you know, where to take things. One thing I will say about the aerobic index is that it does seem like it's one of the trickier things to test. You'd have to have specialized equipment. Um, I don't think any coach in any gym would be able to do this right off the bat with what we have available right now or the protocols we have right now, but it's definitely an interesting thought. Yeah. I, I sent this to Dale, um, and talked to him a bit about it. Actually kind of funny. I was at the hospital, my wife was in labor and I was reading this paper, <laughs> um, you know, nothing I could do at the beginning of labor. So I'm reading this paper and I come across this and I highlight it and I text it to Dale and we're having this conversation about the aerobic index while, while my wife is going into labor. <laughs> um, but I think, and Dale and I both agreed that if we take our data and our continuous hang and our repeater score, that it still might show something similar. Um, he's going to run the numbers to find out. Um, essentially, what they're looking for is um, they're assuming that it's related to the aerobic capacity in restoring energy during recovery of that intermittent test. And that's why we can go so much longer. Um, so 
we're going to look at it with our data and see if we come up with a similar thing and if it's something that we find useful to to use for our, our athletes. I think it's super interesting. Very much so. so. Yeah. Uh, I, I like that popping up here mm -hmm. quite a bit. Uh, one other thing I found interesting about this paper was that they didn't necessarily find that reoxygenation of the forearm was more associated with uh, climbing ability. It was more associated with the discipline that you practice the most. Yep. So sport climbers were almost always better than boulders. Yeah. Um, and boulders were really similar to the lowest level sport climbers. Yeah. Uh, even the best boulders were. So I think that's super interesting and just, you know, just goes to show we see, you know, boulders or we see sport climbers go bouldering and they're shaking out in the middle of yep. a long boulder where a boulder would just punch it. And, you know, a boulder might make fun of them, but they're actually using the skills that they have to their, you know, to their benefit. Whereas a boulder just doesn't have that skill. Yeah. It's not that he wouldn't stop and shake out there. He just can't. And looking <laughs> back at the first test they did, which is the maximal strength test, the boulders had the highest values of finger strength and the sport climbers were, right. were lower than them. So, you know, it's, it's yep. specific adaptation to impose demands, right? It's just a great example of that said principle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing to keep in mind too when you're, you know, if you're getting an assessment, whether it's from Lattice or from us or for whoever, the coach in your gym, uh, if you're a boulder going into an assessment and there's some intermittent test and you don't perform well on it, well, there's a reason for that. Um, doesn't mean you suck as a rock climber. Yeah. It just means you've, you've built yourself up to be this specific type of athlete who may not score well on this type of test. That's a good point. You know, I do run into folks who like get an assessment result back from someone and they're like, man, this means I'm a bad person. And that's not the case. You <laughs> right. <know>? Like, <laughs> right. Totally. There's so much more that goes into it than just objective metrics. And we, yeah. we got to keep that in exactly. mind. Well, I, hopefully this episode has been kind of an eye-opening look at uh, the study designs and, you know, these things still get published, even if it doesn't make sense, um, for the sport, it's still going to get published. It, you know, they're still getting what they're looking for. They're just mm -hmm. not necessarily looking for the right things, uh, or the, the things that are going to be applicable to us as coaches and as athletes. These, yeah. This is, a, um, these are great examples of why just reading the abstracts is not the evidence to make sweeping claims about how to train or how to justify what you think you should do to get better. You really need to do maybe a little bit more research or reach out to people who have looked into things a little more in depth because a lot mm -hmm. of what's presented on the surface level may not hold up when you look a little deeper. Yeah, totally. It is a little concerning to me that I found like seven papers about chalking up. <laughs> it's it's one of the most studied things in rock climbing as far as I can tell. And one of the things that we probably aren't going to change our mind on regardless. No. I mean, you and I both, we saw the paper <laughs> like, nah. <laughs> uh -uh. <laughs> yeah, as soon as I saw it, I was like, okay, somebody has refuted this. Yep. <laughs> there's there's a rap battle going on in the background here that I need to find out about. Yeah. All right. You can find both Paul and I all over the internet by following the links right there in your show notes. You can find Paul at his gym, Crux Conditioning in Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you've got questions, comments, or papers you'd like for us to take a look at, hit us up at community.powercompanyclimbing.com. We've looked at quite a few that people sent us this season. So definitely, if you come across something, send it to us. 
Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and please tell all of your friends who tell you that liquid chalk and having your arm over your head while shaking out will allow you to climb a grade harder, that you have the perfect podcast for them. We'll see you next week when we discuss warming up for sport and whether or not we're doing the right things. See y'all then. It's done. You keep saying that and it's bullshit every time. Always. You know what? I'm done. Okay. You and I, we're done. Breaking Beta is brought to you by Power Company Climbing and Crux Conditioning and is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. For transcripts, citations, and more, visit powercompanyclimbing.com slash breaking beta. Let's not get lost in the who, what, and whens. The point is, we did our due diligence. Our music, including our theme song, Tumbleweed, is from legendary South Dakota band, Riff Lord. This is it. This is how it ends.
Club Drone Audio.